Thank you for downloading the Best of Ridi Tabi podcast. Following many requests, we are making the week that wasn't with Nick Rabinovitz, Talking Sex and the Naked Scientist with Chris Smith, a separate podcast. If you are downloading these podcasts automatically, you will have to resubscribe to the new podcast should you wish to continue receiving them. You can do this right now. The week that wasn't, Talking Sex and the Naked Scientist will not be published under the Best of Ridi Tabi from the beginning of July. Your family, your community, your country, your responsibility. Be the best citizen you can be. Find the Bill of Rights on leadersa.co.za. The Naked Scientist on Talk Radio 702 and 567 Cape Talk with Reedy Clubby. 28 minutes to 10 o'clock. This is also one of those conversations that we podcast for you every single Friday. So the Naked Scientist is here. Anything that you want to ask him, we're stripping science uh, down to its bare essentials on 021-446-0567-011-883-0702. Good morning, Chris. Morning, Reedy. Lovely to chat to you again. I have a question. I have a question. Now, when the sun is out on a bright sunny day, my observation, Chris, is that at one o'clock during the day, the sun is brighter and it is hotter than at 10 o'clock in the morning. Is there the same kind of variable for darkness? Is 1 a.m. at night darker than 9 p.m. in the evening? It probably is, but not for the reason you're thinking, because at one o'clock, more people will be asleep and more lights will be off. So the amount of ambient light pollution is probably going to be a bit lower. But in terms of the moon going over overhead, then the moon will probably be brighter and fuller when it's not at the extremes of the horizon. Because when it's coming through a lot more atmosphere, the light is going to be a little bit more scattered, so it will feel less intense. Whereas when the moon is dead overhead, just as the sun is dead overhead, the light will be coming through the shortest path to you through the atmosphere and therefore will be slightly brighter i'd say Mm -hmm. but i think up against the effects of local activity people driving around with their headlights on people having their house lights on and so on i think up against that the difference is going to be marginal compared with the amount of light that we're producing locally and artificially at that time of night. Mm-hmm. All right, let's go straight to the lines then on 021-446-0567-011-883-0702. Nari in Johannesburg, you've got a question. Hello, really hi, Chris. Yes. Um, I want to know, why do children, I've got a nine-month-old and he's got a very fast heart rate than mine and I'm 28 years old. Why do children have a faster heart rate than adults? Okay. Sorry, I didn't quite catch it. Okay, can he says he's got a nine-month-old baby, and his mm. observation and experience is that uh, the baby's heartbeat is faster than his. Is there scientific explanation? Do babies have a faster? Do babies' hearts beat faster than adults' hearts? They certainly do, Nari. And the reason for this is their hearts are much smaller. So if you were to weigh the heart of an adult who's in good health, you'd have a heart of uh, 250, 300 grams, and in some cases even bigger if you're a trained athlete. And that much muscle means that it can, with each beat, pump a lot more blood. So each, each beat of the heart will eject maybe 100 millilitres of blood. Whereas in a baby, a heart which in an adult is about the size of a big fist is maybe half that size or even tinier because it's only got to supply blood to a much smaller body. And if you've got something which is much smaller and therefore weighs maybe a quarter of the amount of the adult equivalent, then it's going to pump less blood with each beat. 
but because babies have a high metabolic rate, because their body is growing, then they nonetheless need to make sure they maintain good perfusion of their tissues and deliver a good rate of blood flow, but they've got to do it with a heart that's smaller and less powerful. So the way they do it is by pumping a smaller amount of blood more often. And in physiology, we talk about the equation CO, cardiac output, equals HR, heart rate, times SV, stroke volume. And you can see that if you change the heart rate, you can afford for the stroke volume, the amount of blood that comes out with every beat, to be a bit lower. Mm. So what the baby's doing is basically maintaining a high cardiac output that it needs to supply its tissues by having a lower stroke volume but a compensatory higher heart rate. And that's what you're seeing. And so you're absolutely right. And if you take it to extremes, if you go down to a, a mouse or a, a rat or something, so a smaller animal, their heart rate will be very, very high, maybe 300, 400 beats every minute compared with a baby's about 150 and an adult's 50 or 60. Let's go then to Lindy in Newlands. Hi. Hello, Hi, Lindy. Mm-hmm. Hello, Chris. Hello, Reedy. My question is, why is snoring so much more of a problem for men than it is for women? <laughs> Are they both differently formed or what's the problem? <laughs> I I beg to differ, Lindy. Um, I, I've known a number of women that, that do actually snore quite badly. Um, but maybe that's just me, I don't know. Uh, I think that if you sort of look at what happens when we snore, that may give us some pointers towards what could be the cause. Snoring is caused by the soft palate, the floppy tissue at the back of the throat, falling backwards and partially occluding or blocking your airway. And so when you breathe in, the incoming air is having to push this tissue out of the way and in just the same way that a reed in a clarinet vibrates as the air flows past it and that makes the sound, effectively at the back of your throat you have a very large clarinet reed and this is making the rasping noises. The reason this tends to happen as we get older is as you get older people tend to get a bit heavier and more tissue around the neck and throat more mass there tends to make the tissues heavier so they're more likely to flop and close off the airway and secondly as we get older everything becomes a bit saggier unfortunately which is why people resort to facelifts and things like that and as a result the tissue is more likely to adopt that abnormal position and become an occlusion across the airway that makes a snoring sound now it may be that men are more prone to putting on a bit more weight than women although the statistics don't bear that out because it looks like there's roughly even Stevens numbers of obese men and women and it could be that men just are aging a little bit faster than women but again the statistics don't bear out in terms of the the physical aging effect that's visible men do seem to age more rapidly than women in terms of their tissues clapping out a bit sooner because women tend to outlive men by a good 10 years or so but um that shouldn't necessarily affect the snoring risk so i'd say it's perhaps a weight thing because maybe maybe big men are on average bigger than women from a younger age perhaps um but that's the best i can do and i think actually if you were to to look into it you probably find that but that both males and females probably make their contribution to the snoring stakes to be <laughs> honest <laughs> all right we're taking your calls on 021-446-0567-011-8830702 i have an sms here please could the naked scientist give a short explanation of is it peripheral neuro neuropathy can it be caused, hold on, can it be caused by trauma, uh, example, an, an operation, and is it reversible? That's from Robert. I don't know what this is about. Uh, Chris? Okay, well, peripheral, peripheral means around mm-hmm. the body, and neuropathy means damage to nerves. 
and you can get neuropathies for a whole range of reasons. When you have a neuropathy, a nerve has been damaged or has died, and this means that the job that that nerve did to a certain part of the body or in a certain part of the body is lost. So if you have diabetes, you can get something called mononeuritis multiplex. And this is where nerve fibres, usually the longest nerve fibres, those supplying the fingers and those supplying the toes, tend to be most affected. The sensory nerve fibres supplying those peripheries are damaged and people then develop the syndrome of paresthesiae. Uh, this is pins and needles or anaesthesia. They can't feel what's going on in their peripheries as well as they should be able to. And this is why people with diabetes may develop ulcers on their feet, for example, because a stone may go into their shoe, they don't realise it's there, and they walk around with this pressure on a certain focal point in their foot for longer than they ought to. And this causes a local injury, and then you get infection and other problems which mean that it doesn't heal up properly. So that's one form of neuropathy. You can also get neuropathies because of drugs, and there are some forms of drug treatment, especially some of the chemotherapy agents that some people have to use for cancer, mm -hmm. and also some drugs that treat TB. For example, if you're on the, the drug um, isoniazid and pyridoxine and ethambutol and the other treatments that are used for TB, in some cases, isoniazid can, can deplete one of your B vitamins, and nerve cells are absolutely dependent on a supply of B vitamins in order to work properly, and if you deprive them of their vitamin, in this case B6 is the one I'm referring to, then you can end up with a nerve problem. You can also, if you don't have enough vitamin B12, get a neuropathy as mm. well. So there are a whole range of different reasons, toxic reasons, um, the metabolic reasons and also some cancers can cause autoimmune destruction of nerves and unfortunately in many cases these things present late and by the time they do present uh, it's too late for those particular nerve fibres. In some cases if you get a neuropathy and you take away the cause peripheral nerves are quite good at regrowing so they can regrow and resupply the, the damaged area if you remove the cause but often that's not the case and people sometimes have to suffer the, the effects of the neuropathy unfortunately. We're taking your calls on 021-446-0567-011-883-0702. The Naked Scientist is here. The Naked Scientist on Talk Radio 702 and 567 Cape Talk with Reedy Clubby. And we're taking your calls for The Naked Scientist. Let's go straight to Lynn in Clermont. Hi. Hi, Reedy. Mm. Um, yeah, my nine-year-old son asked yesterday, what is the reason for our internal organs being moist? <laughs> Um, why should they be? And I mean, I mean, I understand that they're in blood and that it's dark and dank inside. Okay. Chris? Yes, hello, Lynn. What an interesting question. You can always rely on the kids to ask the Tell best questions, it, can't yeah? you? It's brilliant. Absolutely. Um, well, because your body relies on your bloodstream in order to supply oxygen via red blood cells and sugar and blood is basically half half water half cells every tissue is bathed in fluid so the fluid arrives in the form of blood in blood vessels but the terminal blood vessels the capillaries are leaky so water filters out of the blood vessel and partitions into the tissue and all the cells are bathed in what we call extracellular fluid but because there are components of the blood big proteins that are very water loving and they can't get out of the blood vessels this is 
an equilibrium because the water is being pushed out of the blood vessel by the pressure of the blood flow, but at the other end of the blood vessel, close to the vein, it's being pulled back in by these proteins. And this keeps a certain volume of water, as long as this equation doesn't get disturbed, uh, a certain volume of water in all the tissues and in all the, all the time, and also preserves a certain volume of water in circulation all the time. And when something goes wrong to disturb that, uh, you can get what's called edema, which is the build-up of an abnormal amount of fluid in the tissue. But effectively, all of your organ cells, and therefore all your organs' tissues, are continuously bathed in fluid, and some of that fluid will spill out onto the surface of those organs and keep them damp. And because they're not exposed to the air, which could dry them out, then the air spaces, or any, I don't mean air spaces, but if you've got cavities inside the body, then they're going to remain wet because there's nowhere for the water to go. But any excess water that builds up up can be taken away by, by little um, vessels called lymphatics. And so all of our tissues have a certain threshold of volume of water when we're healthy, and they keep that in a strictly controlled equilibrium. If you get inflammation or something goes wrong, if you get an insect bite or something, or a scratch or a cut, or you have some surgery, then you can shift that equilibrium and make some water build up for a while. But then when the swelling, that's what swelling is, it's the build up of water when it goes down again, then everything is returned to normal. Thank you very much, Lynn. Let's go to Diego in Kempton Park. Good morning to you, Diego. Good morning, really. And uh, I agree there. Mm. Yes. Uh, my question is that uh, where does an electric eel get its uh, electricity from? Electric because, eel. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, maybe we might be able to clone the process there and get it. And get electricity for the nation. (laughs) (laughs) What a brilliant idea. Um, Where people keep stealing my power cables, that actually could be a lifesaver. I'm Um, sure. Yes, another very good question. Uh, We actually know very well how these animals make this current. And in fact, I went to one museum, I think I was in Australia, and they had an electric eel swimming around in a tank, and they had an electrode. And every time it went past the electrode, you could actually see the discharges coming off of it and and skewing this uh, galvanometer, a very sensitive measure of current. Um, The way they do it is they have at the end of their tail a specialised set of cells which are very similar to muscle cells or nerve cells. These cells pump ions, charged particles, across their membrane, so they push out positive charge and they bring in negative charge into the cells so the membranes of the cells, which are effectively a fatty layer, an insulator, end up acting as a big capacitor with uh, the inside of the cell net negative compared to the outside. And by linking lots of these cells in series, it's like you taking lots of batteries that you buy in the supermarket and connecting them end to end. They can get a very big voltage eventually. And this voltage they can discharge at will and this will cause a a local current flow in the vicinity of the animal which can shock or stun other animals nearby and this can be used for defence or it can be used to attack and therefore render prey senseless while the eel then turns around and bites it. I remember when I was in a school biology lesson, one Mm -hmm. of my friends putting his hand up and saying, please sir, can you tell me why don't electric eels short out in the water? Um, It's a good question, but the reason they don't short out is because their store of electricity is inside their body in these cells, which are working in a very similar way to the way your brain works and your heart works. It's just that this is a very long battery that they've built of these cells that are capable of delivering this current when they want it, from where they want it, so they're not leaking the current into the water until they choose to do so.
Thank you very much, dear. A lovely, lovely question. So, naked scientist, Zaid phoned and had a question. And I said to Mava, that cannot be a scientific question. We, ca- we can't. We can't ask that. And then Mava has just gone onto the in- internet and unearthed some very interesting information about this. And I'm completely fascinated. So, let's give Zaid a chance to ask his question. Zaid in Krugersdorp. Hi, Ridi. Hi, Chris. Sorry, yeah. man. What, what's been bugging me was, what I want to know is, why do my wires, especially my, my plug point, my charger, whatever it is, it's always in a tangle. Is there any, <laughs> any reason? So I said, why do wires tangle up? Duh, but geez, I didn't realize there's some scientific research on this. <laughs> no, there's a lot of research. A brilliant question, Zahid. Thank you. And probably one of the most important things that scientists are interested in this in, in this for this reason is that we have inside every single one of the trillion or so cells that make us up our own tiny wires in the form of DNA, because every cell measuring fractions of a millimetre across contains two and a half metres of DNA. I mean, that's like you taking a skipping rope that's between um, Johannesburg and Cape Town and stuffing it in your pocket. I mean, it's incredible, the ability of cells to wrap up this DNA. Mm. And scientists are very interested in this whole concept of, therefore, how things don't tangle or do tangle for that reason, because packaging very long strings of things is what nature appears to be able to do incredibly well and if we can work out how it does it then we have a solution to the problem of why do wires tangle now it does sound a bit of a fatuous question why do wires get tangled because why don't they stay straight but until you think of it in terms of well why should a wire stay straight straight is only one possible configuration or position for that wire tangled is much more likely because there are umpteen different ways that a wire can tangle itself up there's only one way that the wire can stay nice and straight and smooth and untangled and because of just the the way that things randomly arrange themselves when you disturb them then the net outcome in any situation like this is to move from one of order to one of chaos Mm. and this is actually the basis of the the principle of entropy which Boltzmann came up with over a hundred years ago the whole idea that everything in the universe is trying to become more disorganized and if you start with something that's highly organized then it has a tendency to become disorganized and so wires tangling is just the fact that there are many many more ways and chances and possibilities for a wire to misarrange or disarrange itself than to arrange itself in a very organized way and cells have had to overcome this problem in order to organize this incredibly long length of DNA that they've got wound up inside them and they do it by spooling up the DNA into lots of little short segments wound around tiny reels called nucleosomes and that's how they organize their DNA. Now, Chris, we've had a, a very interesting case here of a little girl who suffered severe burns and she was only given 10% chance of survival. But uh, this week there was uh, an operation, a massive skin graft operation last week. And there are a lot of questions from here, from, from, from this, that healthy skin was taken from her groin and was cultivated in a laboratory in Boston, sent back to South Africa, and the transplant happened. How do you cultivate skin and uh, why is it that this particular uh, epicell could be grown so quickly when normal skin takes longer to grow? Um, I don't know the specific details of the case, so Mm. I can only really comment on this in general terms. So please forgive me if I uh, say anything which isn't directly applicable in this case. Um, Skin grafting is quite commonly used, and the reason that we would do a skin graft, especially in cases of severe burns, the reason people die when they've had a severe burn is because the injury to their own skin means that their own skin ceases to act as an impervious barrier, 
it stops you dehydrating normally your skin and if you burn it then you lose that ability to stop water leaving your body and people lose copious amounts of water through the burn site and this can be in the case of a very big burn sufficient to le leave you extremely dehydrated and replacing the fluid and keeping the body biochemistry stable can be a real challenge for doctors also skin has a very important role in preventing the ingress of dirt and microorganisms so infection in burns victims is often a major major challenge and what doctors can do is to patch up the area that's been damaged by taking skin that's healthy from an unburned part of the body and taking a, a layer a scraping of that area which includes the healthy uh, dermis which includes the cells which are actually the stem cells which make the overlying skin and you take strips of this skin mm. and you place it into the area which has been damaged and the cells then begin to proliferate again and grow and they then establish a new patch of skin which will replace the skin that's been killed now in some cases they use killed skin because it's a good way to patch up and seal a wound while your own healthy skin replaces itself but if the burns are so severe that they've gone through the surface layers of the skin and they've damaged the basal layer where the stem cells are that make new skin you need to put new stem cells in and i suspect that in this case what they've done for this little girl mm. is they've taken her own skin cells because you don't want someone else's skin cells in there because then you would reject them immunologically they've taken her own skin cells expanded the numbers in the laboratory and skin has an enormous growth capacity you wow. can you can grow huge amounts of skin in fact i saw a statistic which is if you take a foreskin from a newly <laughs> circumcised baby boy for example you can dissociate it and put the cells in a dish and you can grow them and grow them and grow them and you'll make enough skin to cover a football field you are kidding so these cells have a huge a huge you know th this is make, make some men boast um but <laughs> you know you have a huge regenerative capacity from skin so it's possible to uh, to grow skin very rapidly and then apply this to the injured area and it acts as a new patch or seal to the to the damage keeping out the infection and also supplying new cells to make new skin which will seal the area and give and give a lasting repair oh i just love science and what the human body is capable of thank you very much uh, chris for that wonderful explanation we'll chat to you again next week all right thank you for having me ready bye everybody bye -bye. and see you soon bye bye well imagine that hey a football field made out of foreskin maybe bafana bafana should play on a field like that they'll start scoring goals don't know